this is an excerpt from The Boy Book, A Study of Habits and Behaviors Plus Techniques for Taming Them by E. Lockhart. Chapter 1, The Care and Ownership of Boobs, a subject important to our study of the male humanoid animal because the boobs, if deployed properly, are like giant boy magnets attached to your chest or smallish boy magnets, or medium, depending on your endowment. But boy magnets, that is the point. They are magnets, we say. Magnets! One, if you jiggle, wear a bra. This means you. Yes, you. It is not anti-feminist. It is more comfy and keeps the boobs from getting floppy. Two, no matter how puny your frontal equipment, don't wear the kind with the giant pads inside. If a guy squeezes them, he will wonder why they feel like Nerf balls instead of boobs. And if you forget and wear a normal bra one day, everyone will then speculate on the strange, expanding, and contracting nature of your boobage. Reference, the mysterious, changing chestal profile of Madame Long, French teacher and sometime bra bra patter. Three, a helpful hint. For optimal shape, go in the bathroom stall and hike them up inside the bra. Four, Do not perform the above maneuver in public, no matter how urgent you think it is. Five, do not go topless in anyone's hot tub. Remember how Cricket had to press her chest against the side of the Van Dusen's tub for 45 minutes when Gideon and his friends came home? Let that be a lesson to you. Yes, you. Six, do not sunbathe topless either, because unless you're completely ready to have sunburnt boobs whose skin will never be the same again, or unless you want to be yelled at by your mother for exposing yourself to the neighbors? No. From the Boy Book, A Study of Habits and Behaviors Plus Techniques for Taming Them, A Kangaroo Production, written by me, Ruby Oliver, with number six added in Kim's handwriting. Approximate date, summer after freshman year. The week before junior year began, the doctors Yamamoto threw a ginormous going-away party for my ex-friend Kim. I didn't go. She is my ex-friend, not my friend. Kim Yamamoto was, ha- was leaving to spend a summer at school in Tokyo on an exchange program. She speaks fluent Japanese. Her house has a big swimming pool, an even bigger yard, and a view of the Seattle skyline. On the eve of her going away, so I hear, her parents hired a sushi chef to come and jo- chop up dead fish right in front of everyone, and the kids got hold of a few wine bottles. Supposedly, it was a great party. I wouldn't know. I do know that the following acts of ridiculousness were perpetrated that night after the adults got tired and went to bed around 11. One, someone chundered behind the garden shed and never confessed. There were a number of possible suspects. Two, people had handstand contests, and it turns out Sheev Neal can walk on his hands. Three, with the party winding down and all the guys inside the house watching Letterman, Katerina Dolgan... Heidi Sussman and Ariel Olivieri wiggled out of their clothes and went skinny-dipping. Four, Nora Van Dusen decided to go in, too. She must have had some wine to do something like that. She is not usually a go-naked kind of girl. Five, a group of guys came out onto the lawn and Nora's boobs were floating on top of the water as she sat on the steps of the pool. Everyone could see them. Six, Shep Cabot, a.k.a. Cabby, who squeezed my own relatively small boob last year with great expertise, 
yes, only one boob, long story, but who is otherwise a lame human being, as far as I can tell, snapped a photo, or at least pretended he did. Facts unclear upon initial reportage. Seven, Nora grabbed her boobs and ran squealing into the house in search of a towel, which was a bad idea, because she wasn't wearing anything except a pair of soggy blue panties. Cabby snapped, or said he snapped, another photo. The rest of the girls stayed coyly in the pool until Nora, having got her wits together and wearing a pair of Kim's sweatpants and a T-shirt, came out and brought them their clothes. I know all this because no one was talking about anything else on the first day of school. Nobody spoke to me directly, of course, because although I used to be reasonably popular, after the horrific debacles of sophomore year in which I lost not only my then-boyfriend Jackson but also my then-friends Cricket, Kim, and Nora, I was now a certifiable leper with a slutty reputation. Megan Flack, who carpools me to school, was my only friend. Last year, Megan and her hot senior boyfriend, Bick, spent every waking minute together annoying all the girls who would have liked to date Bick and all the guys who didn't want to watch the two of them making out at the lunch table. People hated Megan. She was the girl you love to hate, not because she does anything mean or spiteful, but because she's naturally gorgeous, extremely oblivious, and completely boy-oriented because she licks her lips when she talks to guys and pouts cutely, and all the guys stare at her like they can't pull her, their eyes away. But I don't hate her now. She doesn't even bug me anymore, and she was lost on the first day of school because Vic had left for Harvard the week before. So, Megan and I were standing in front of the male cubbies when we heard a crew of newly minted senior girls discussing Kim's party and what happened. Then we heard some more from the guys who sat behind us in American literature, and then from the girl who was on the swim team with me. And by the end of first period, it was clear that Nora's boobs were going to be a major focus of nearly every conversation for the rest of the day. Because Nora is stacked. Really stacked. She is just not a small girl. She's on the basketball team, and she keeps those things in line by wearing a sports bra every day instead of a regular. So maybe you wouldn't notice unless you slept over her at her house and saw them in the flesh. But once they pop out, they popped. I don't like to use this language to describe the female body, but the right word for what Nora's got on her chest is hooters. Nora Van Dusen is not actually the kind of girl guys tend to pay attention to. She's never had a boyfriend. She takes photographs and watches sports on TV. She laughs a lot and drinks her espresso black with no sugar. Her family goes to church. And now she was walking down the hall with her books clutched to her chest, looking down at the floor while guys called, Don't hide that light under a bushel, or Set him free, Van Dusen. Twins like that need a regular airing. God, it was like they'd never been forced to take American history and politics, where we spent nearly half a semester on the history of feminism. Everyone should have known after that that it's completely retro and lame to make comments about other people's bodies in the hallway. Hey, Nora, can you fly me somewhere with those hot air balloons? It was like they'd never seen a boob before. And maybe they hadn't. You are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is the Living Writer Show. My name is Molly, and today we have an interview with E. Lockhart. She is the author of The Boyfriend List and Fly on the Wall. Her new book is coming out September 26th. It is called um, The Boy Book. Maybe I already said that, but the uh, Boyfriend List is the 
um, previous book and the boy book, the new one coming out on the 26th, is a sequel. We just heard an excerpt from that. So stay tuned for more interview with Ewok Hart. Um, and that's that. Um, if you have any questions, concerns, or are interested in the rest of our shows, you can go to www.wcbn.org slash livingwriters and check things out. So how did you get started writing and writing young adult novels specifically? Um, well, I've, I've written for little kids and for adults for much longer than I've written for young adults. So I had um, something of a writing career before I started thinking about YA. Um, and really, my um, agent, the person who represents me, suggested it. And I, I love an assignment. That's the kind of writer I am. I like to, you know, somebody says, oh, do this. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, I was a, a geek in, in college that way. I always did my assignments right away because I liked sort of being sent on a little mission to do something. And um, so she suggested I, I try my hand at it, and I did, and I ended up having just a really amazingly fun time writing The Boyfriend List, which was my first YA book. And um, I just, I loved doing it. It was more fun writing than I'd ever had before. So I've stuck with it. Talking about The Boyfriend List, and I guess assignments, maybe this has something to do with it. Um, why did you decide to do the format of the book, which, um, for those of you who haven't read it, has many, many large footnotes um, a la serious, um, <laughs> serious texts. What what get inspired you to do it that way, or did it just kind of happen? Um, well, I, I I have a doctorate in English literature <laughs> <laughs> that I don't really use too much in my current profession. But um, I love footnotes. I I always found that you know some of the most interesting things in the academic texts I read were in footnotes, and I had seen footnotes used in fiction most particularly in um, books by David Foster Wallace, who wrote Infinite Jest, and a bunch of really entertaining essays um, in Consider the Lobster and a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, all of which have intensely amusing footnotes. And I thought it would be an interesting and fun thing to do um, in YA. And it's actually, it turns out that Jonathan Stroud, who I've never read, I'm not even sure I'm saying his name right, um, S-T-R-O-U-D, um, also uses them in young adult fantasy, and um, there's two other books out, three other books out this year that all have footnotes that are YA novels: um, Bad Kitty by Michelle Jaffe, and Abundance of Catherines by John Green that comes out in the fall, and a book called Drawing a Blank by Daniel Ehrenhaft. So it seems sort of like a lot of us had this idea at the same time, <laughs> um, and uh, it, I think it's partly because. Um, it's a very fun way to show how somebody's mind works. And I think in particular the teenage mind, um, one, in trying to write like a teenager, one wants to go off on tangents. One wants to say, oh, oh, uh, and then, you know, I'll get back to my story in a minute, but let me tell you about this other thing. Blah, 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 right? But um, a good, fast-flowing narrative doesn't always allow you to really do that, and a footnote allows you to kind of have your cake and eat it too, get to go off on the tangent and keep your narrative flow at the same time. 
Maybe we should start trying to find an audio equivalent of footnotes so we can go Definitely. off on tangents in our interviews. <laughs> yeah, they, they, well, they, uh, you know, there's audio books of both the boyfriend list um, and Fly on the Wall, and I think they're going to do the boy book as well, which mm-hmm. also has footnotes. And um, they just kind of, they did them sort of voce, like you go down <laughs> into like a different register. And, you know, I don't know if people got them or not. You'll have to. I didn't read the footnotes when I read for you guys. Wow. We'll have to check it out. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to see what we can can do with our editing process to incorporate our audio footnotes. (laughs) And while I have this uh, sick voice, I think it would be (laughs) an amazing time to try. (laughs) So in the boyfriend list, um, and the sequel for that is the boy book that's coming out in... September 26th. September 26th, yeah. The premise is that uh, this girl, Ruby, is keeping a list of uh, all of her boyfriends, which include everything from, you know, first crush to, I think he looked at me once in the hallway, (laughs) pretty much. Um, And it just uh, presents a very wide idea of boyfriend. Is that a reflection of how um, you think young girls are influenced by their crushes and uh, more like their thoughts of a boy rather than their actual interactions with him? Um, <laughs> Lost whew, that's, that's a smart question. In the book, Ruby is assigned to write the boyfriend list by her shrink. She's been having panic attacks due to the horrible breakup with the boy who ends up being number 13 on the boyfriend list, um, who's her first real boyfriend. So part of part of the reason that so many of the boys are, you know, I think you looked at me once in the hallway, kinds of boys, um, is, you know, you have to have a list, and a book is not a list. So I thought of this idea, which is, you know, don't don't write a book structured like a list. This is a very bad idea, as I learned once I really started to try to write it, because a list is not a novel. A list is the opposite of a novel. A novel has to have characters that go all the way through it. You can't just, you know, have people in order and then forget about them and leave them behind in your life and have them not matter. Um, so I had to find some way of, you know, giving her one or two relationships that were actually really important to my plot and yet, you know, make a list of some 15 boys. Um, and they couldn't all be important, right? They had to be boys who had in some way affected the way that she thought about boys, boys in in some way affected um, the way she related to other people, um, that, so that all those boys had, had effects on the boys, on the one or two boys that she really actually had relationships with, if that makes any sense. Um, But yeah, I still remember like the kid that I had a crush on when I was four, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I think. I remember him. I remember just what he did was doing in the playground certain yeah. days. Um, yeah, I kind of remember some of the people I've had crushes on better than I remember a few of the people I've actually kissed or yes, things exactly. like that. Exactly. <laughs> those, and those people that you don't ever get, the people that you, yeah. you never really notice you back, mm-hmm. you know, those can loom very large in your imagination, mm-hmm. especially when you're, you know, young and inexperienced or, um, you know, still at the point where you're experiencing a lot of things for the first time. So Ruby keeps this list because her therapist has asked her to make it um, to sort of lead their talks. But um, you, it says in the boyfriend list that you actually kept a list of all your boyfriends. 
Well, you I don't did. have to tell us details, obviously. But, I mean, obviously, want <laughs> no, to hear the details. details but um, you know, <laughs> was it as all-encompassing as this? And why did you keep a list? No, I ke- I kept a list of all the boys I'd ever kissed. Mm. Because um, I was somehow worried that in my old age I would forget them. And it seemed bad to forget them. Did you leave out the ones um, that you wanted to forget? Uh, no, I put them all on. Um, but I've lost the list. And so that was part of the genesis of this idea was I was looking through like a box. I stopped keeping the list, you know, after college it. or something. You'll see it but, published um, on the web. But it got too long. Um, but I stopped keeping it, forgot about it. But I was looking through... Um, a whole bunch of high school memorabilia in a box, you know, yearbooks and school newspapers and photographs and flyers from school plays and things like that. And, and I just suddenly thought, oh, gosh, what happened to that boyfriend list? You know, I hope it hasn't fallen into the wrong hands. <laughs> and, um, of course, that is what happens to Ruby's list. Um, her boyfriend list does fall into the wrong hands. I have a list of that nature and... If it ever it's discovered, I will die. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not well, it depends on who it's discovered by. I just you know, I feel like anyone in general, and I'd be mortified. Okay. <laughs> I, I can't I'm, believe I just owned up to it. I can't in know this public that. Forum. I can't believe that you haven't told me everything. Um. <laughs> anyway, I guess talking about fears of people finding out everyone you've kissed and how and why. Why do you think people or teenagers specifically, or Sarah's friends and my friends? in our fears at least, are so ready to accept sort of a slut label for someone like, oh, you've kissed too many people, or we think that maybe you've kissed too many people, um, and be so judgmental about that when all of us probably have this list sitting somewhere, you know, in our heads or or worry that we're, you know, going through the same thing. I guess, why, why do you think that's so powerful of a label? And why did you decide to use it? I decided to use it, yeah, because it is a powerful label. Um, I think for the same reason that Ruby's American History and Politics teacher talks about, which is that um, it is in some ways still a discriminatory label, not just a negative one, because it's only used for women, um, and there's no equivalent for men that has the same derogatory connotations. And... um, so in that sense, because it's, you know, a horrible thing you can say about someone that also sort of derides them for being female, it's it's um, creates a lot of, of attachment to a lot of shame, I think, for people who get labeled that way. And I think that, you know, lots of horrible labels that we use have been reclaimed in one way or another, um, queer, for example. Um, by the communities that have been labeled that way. Um, and slut has not, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that comes up in the boyfriend list. They talk about maybe we should make a like a sluts club. Um, <laughs> you know, sluts unite, and they draw little logos for the sluts of America and <laughs> whatnot. And have maybe a superhero, some kind of superhero slut <laughs> runs around um, avenging for sluts everywhere. Um <laughs> And uh, Meg Cabot wrote something sort of similar in, um, what novel is that, Ready or Not, mm-hmm. where they, they do a sort of Spartacus thing, and they all stand up and say, I'm a slut, no, I'm a slut, even you know, people who are sort of famous virgins or whatever, they all stand up in the cafeteria of the high school <laughs> and say, I'm a slut, I'm a slut, <laughs> and, um, and reclaim it as a, as a positive, <laughs> um, you know, a word that shows... Uh, 
openness and liberation and comfort and sexuality. It seems like that's been tried before, though. I know the riot girl sorts of things that I was kind of into in high school was very much into reclaiming words like slut and bitch, but it hasn't really worked. It hasn't really taken, though, <laughs> has it? Yeah, I'm no. not sure I have a good answer for that. Um, I mean, I wasn't expecting you to tell me why. <laughs> Elockhart, <laughs> tell me how to make slut a good word now. <laughs> you have all the answers, obviously. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Um okay, moving on from that. Um as we've said many times already, Ruby seeing a therapist. What do you think the role of a therapist in sort of modern teenage life is? Is it it's a little bit of a shame factor for her, but not too much. What do you think why why did you decide to include the therapist in your um narrative? Well, I don't really feel that I'm equipped to, like, talk about modern teenage life. Because, like, let's face it, I'm 38 years old. I'm not a, a, a – being a teenager was a long time ago for me. Mm-hmm. You know, what I'm writing about is not, you know, anything that I see as, like, the state of teenagers today. I don't – you know, I'm not a teenager. I don't know. Okay. What I uh, am is a novelist who remembers those feelings very accurately. I have a very good memory of – all my teenage years and my childhood years um, and a very emotional memory of those times and those feelings. And I'm also really interested in high school and the hierarchies therein, um, the kinds of relationships that people get into in a, you know, a, a small uh, community that they're legally obligated to show up in every day. Um, they have no out. You know, you have to go to high school. And... Um, at a time when when people are, you know, just discovering their sexuality and just figuring out how to treat other people and being exposed to a terrific onslaught of new ideas um, and capable of more, you know, complicated thought than they had been when they were younger. And um, so I think it's a really fascinating period of life to write about, but I, I can't make any claims to, like, knowing what's going on with teenagers and their therapeutic <laughs> practices or lack thereof today. Yeah. Um, you know, I had five years of therapy. I got a lot out of it. <laughs> um, I thought I could write a good description of that process. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very useful narrative technique, given that I had structured this novel like a list, which really was a sucky structure that I was working <laughs> with. And it allowed me to reflect and jump for- It allowed me to jump through- forward in time. Do you know what I mean? I can tell mm-hmm. a story about a boy. Each chapter starts with a different boy. And... Um, tells the sort of little story that goes along with that boy, and then Ruby can talk about it with her therapist, and that way uh, she can jump forward and back in time through from, you know, what happened last week to what happened 10 years ago, and it made for a very fluid narrative structure that uh, was really useful in writing it. So at what point um, did you decide to write a sequel to The Boyfriend List? Is it something that um, you thought of while you were still writing it, or...? Later. Yeah, I decided to write the sequel when I invented the boy book. The boy book is this book that Ruby and her friends keep starting in their 8th grade year through um, middle of their 10th grade year where they write down all of their um, little nuggets of information about the male of the species. And it's kind of written like a sort of mock scientific journal, like a study of wolverines or something. And... Um, and it has, like, little, you know, pretend advice columns and, you know, lists like the one that I read in the excerpt for you guys. 
and um, I invented this l- notebook um, in the boyfriend list, and I suddenly realized that that would be a great and fun way to structure a sequel, is to have each chapter starting with a notebook entry from the boy book. So you get to see what they wrote in eighth, ninth, and tenth grade, and then you get to see how life actually plays itself out in eleventh grade. Listening to Living Writers here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. <clears throat> Excuse me. My name is Melanie Schwederon, and today we talk to E. Lockhart, author of the new novel, The Boy Book, which is coming out on September 26th. Um, it's a sequel to The Boyfriend List and features further adventures of Ruby Oliver. If you want to check out the beginning of this interview, if you missed it, if you're interested, um, if you want more information about E. Lockhart or you want to check out other interviews that we've done, um, you can go to our website, wcbn.org slash livingwriters. Um, there are MP3s there and links to all the authors' websites. This is one of the last or possibly the last in our young adult author series, so be sure to check out what we have if you're interested and you've missed some things. Um, stay tuned. In just a second, we will have a second installment of the interview after these short messages. Twenty-first century humanity, exploring space, searching for answers to dangerous questions. In space, no one can hear you scream. But if you have a modem, you can listen to WCBN live over the World Wide Web at www.wcbn.org. I'm gay! He's gay! The Office of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Affairs offers service to the University of Michigan and Ann Arbor communities. I'm gay! He's gay! LGBTA services include education and training, information, program and organization development, support and referral, and advocacy. CBN. Made me that way. He's gay. He's gay. He's gay. I'm gay. 
For a list of helpful resources, call 763-4186 or visit on the web at www.umich.edu slash tilde I-N-Q-U-E-E-R-Y. For those of you just tuning in, this is Living Writers. We're interviewing E. Lockhart today. Her new uh, novel is The Boy Book, coming out September 26th. In just a second, the rest of the interview. Seems like you're really um, concerned with and aware of the structure of your novels. Was that um, sort of concern... uh, factor in deciding to write a fly on the wall as sort of based on the metamorphosis and the structure of another book? You know, the metamorphosis is structured rather differently in that uh, Sansa never stops being a cockroach. Yeah. Um, Or a vermin, to be more accurate. Um, And in fact, everyone, every review has said that fly on the wall is based on the metamorphosis. And I have to say that I'm neither that ambitious nor that intelligent, I think. Um, <laughs> it's obviously been too long since they've read it. It was a little layered in afterwards. Um, oh. Hmm. I basically liked the title, um, Fly on the Wall. I was sort of playing around with a lot of um, sort of phrases that were familiar phrases, trying to find one that would spark an idea. And I had kind of a list of little phrases that were expressions that I liked. And Fly on the Wall was one of them, and I um, started to uh, think about that in the shower. And I was thinking, you know, well, where where would a teenage girl want to be on a, a fly on the wall? Where would be interesting or important for her to be in a fly on the wall? Where would she find out what she'd most want to know? And then the answer suddenly became clear that it would be the boys' locker room in her high school. And, um, you know, whether... Being naked or not had anything to do with the genesis of that idea, I don't know. <laughs> but um, uh, it was that that I started with. You know, mm-hmm. I was interested in the locker room. I had read lots of books on, on the culture of uh, the sort of male culture of sports. And, um, you know, they're actually not really very sporty boys in, in Fly on the Wall. It's an arts high school. <laughs> Everyone who's, you know, at all sporty would not be considered sporty in the rest of the world. But... Um, but that locker room culture was something I had written about, about women's locker room culture before, and I was interested in um, the dynamics between the boys in the locker room and in writing something with a little bit of a fantasy element to it, you know, having my heroine transform, literally transform into a fly. And then the metamorphosis connection came later. Um, so what gave you the confidence to write about boys' locker room conversation like you had been a fly on the wall in a past life? I have a vivid imagination. <laughs> um, I, you know, like I said, I had written about locker room culture for women um, in various essays. Um, I had... Um, read lots of books about uh, sports culture and male locker room culture. There's a bunch of actually really interesting sort of social critique of that kind of stuff. Um, but I really just, uh, this sounds so cheesy, I just wrote it from the heart. Like I just wrote what I, you know, like I figured out who these guys were and I stuck them in a room together and I, you know, uh, tried to make them act like people. 
you know? Mm-hmm. It's like people are people. I mean, I know boys are different from girls, but they are people. <laughs> We're all, you know. Um, and I've been really pleased, actually, with, with the response from from men. Um, not, I haven't actually gotten any mail from boys. I'm not sure with that bright pink cover that a whole lot of boys are picking up that book. But from <laughs> adult men who have read it, um, the response has been really... Um, moving just in that they they seem to feel that I got got it right must feel good since you never actually got to go in there I've never been in there so you claim um (laughs) but how would we know there's a lot of frank anatomy talk not just in fly on the wall where you have a bunch of boys together in a locker room but in all of your books did you worry at all about maybe turning off not readers but but parents with that and how did you um go about getting the sort of slang and stuff that you use together for the books? I didn't worry about it. Mm -hmm. I think that as somebody who writes for teenagers, I do have an obligation to present certain material with an awareness that some of my readers might be reading about things that they've never experienced. Um or maybe even reading about things that they've never read about before. And I I do try to touch on those subjects with, you know, a certain amount of respect for that. But I also think that the thing we owe teenagers most is um, honesty, truthfulness in their writing, you know. They don't need any more bull from anybody. Um, fiction is a a place to fiction isn't compelling if it's not if it's, if it's not true I don't think on some level so I just tried to write honestly about you know whatever it was I was writing about whether it was something controversial or something not controversial my editors were completely supportive of any slang I needed to use or any um swear words or body parts or whatever, but um, I did choose in Fly on the Wall where I would have been saying, you know, penis, 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 penis all the time to uh, use some other word, <laughs> um, and I just, you know, goofed around and did a lot of find and replace functions till I found some words that I found, you know, funny enough and unusual enough to be entertaining for the whole book rather than... Um, having to use, you know, more accurate words, which would have ended up making everything sound too clinical and also not funny. In the locker room, we don't just get to see boys acting as they are. You all, Gretchen, the main character in Fly on the Wall, also gets a chance to see herself how others see her. Um, And so you kind of had this two jobs there, not just one in your characterization where you had to make the way that Gretchen thought about herself and the way others saw her kind of mesh together for the reader, but have kind of two different her see herself very differently from almost as if the the person on the outside is a different character um was that i mean was that something that you had planned to do from the beginning of the book or did you get the idea for the character first um or i guess what i'm asking rather did you get the idea for a character like this first or the idea for her learning about a character learning about herself in the locker room not just about boys first the original idea was the locker room. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, if you just stick somebody watching other people in a locker room, you, you, who, why would you care? Because 
Mm-hmm. You know, you can't be with a character for the first third of a novel, have her turn into a fly, and then never think about herself again. <laughs> I mean, she has to have somewhere to go. A story's not interesting unless your main character, you know, ha- learns something, develops, changes, moves forward, you know, gets something she wants, tries to get something she wants, something. So it's very much a challenge when, you know, you've turned her into an insect for most of the book mm-hmm. and she can't do anything or leave the room that she's in. She's completely incapacitated. You, I had to find some way of continuing to make her an active character. Um, so some of the stuff that she learns about herself came out of, you know, wanting to keep her energized as a personality, even though she was physically incapacitated. So Gretchen's very interested in comics, which is something that um, Spider-Man specifically that you were interested in. Um, did you put that in because just because of your interest because you hadn't seen a lot of characters or female characters that were interested in comics or just because it fit with the whole you know being an insect idea i think my writing process is a lot less calculated than you're imagining (laughs) like it just happens do you know what i'm saying yeah you you're writing along and you know yeah i you know and and she's at this art school so i stick her in this art school because i went to an art school and i had some idea of the dynamic i wanted between her and the other art students so i was interested in that dynamic in a high school um school where everyone is super unique and um the heroine feels ordinary in comparison um and i wanted her to have some kind of conflict with her art teacher and i wanted a way for her to be good at something and yet have that not be recognized rather than just be a bad student or untalented but to be talented in a different way so i started her so then i was interested in comic books but spider-man came a little bit later do you know what i mean yeah like you i mean spider-man was is by far my favorite superhero and it's the only comic i ever subscribed to and i love superman uh, spider-man but i think i had her drawing superman to start with or maybe batman mm-hmm. um but then, you know, when you're going to have your character turn into a fly, and you can walk on walls, and you suddenly realize, oh, Spider-Man. Of course, Spider-Man. Of course, Spider-Man is the uh, force. You know? Um, but this just happens, you know? And then that's yeah. one of the lovely things about my job is, you mm. know, you're sitting home, and you're in front of your computer and eating Skittles or whatever, and everything's going along in a very mundane fashion, and all of a sudden you realize Spider-Man, and you go <laughs> leaping around your house because you've suddenly got all these connections that you can draw. Yeah, that's one of the hard things about doing interviews about books, too, and I'm sure since you have a PhD in English, it was hard for you, too, is looking at books and finding all the connections and trying to find ways to talk about them with people who, you know, when you write, you just kind of come up with it, and it happens. You don't have a specific reason. Yeah, it just jumps out like, you know, it comes out of your fingers, and then all, you know, or it comes out when you reread what you wrote, and you suddenly realize, oh, if I change this one tiny thing, everything's going to deepen or mm-hmm. click. You are listening to Living Writers here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Melanie Schwederon, and coming up next is the next installment of our interview with E. Lockhart. Her new um, novel, The Boy Book, is coming out on September 26th. That was supposed to be the interview. Both of your books are in first person. Is that the way that you've always written, or is that like for adults and children as well as for young adults, or is that something that you kind of go in and out of depending on the characters? 
I go in and out, um, but I'm probably more comfortable in first person. One of the things I like to do is, is um, you know, find the speech rhythms and the slang and the um, just the modes of talking for the different characters. You know, in the boyfriend list, Ruby has all these footnotes, and she also makes all these lists, and she's also got a certain kind of um, West Coast prep school slang that she talks in. And in Fly on the Wall, um, it, Gretchen, you know, there's a lot. I hit return a lot. And, that, and you know, she's always kind of jumping to the next thought, jumping to the next thing, jumping to the next thing. And a lot of things are on new lines without really paragraph definitions. And um, and everything is in present tense. So it's got a much more immediate feel. And she's, you know, in New York City, half Jewish, half Chinese-American you know, art student, and so her ways of talking come from a very different part of my background. And, you know, I really like getting to play around with the, with, with those different voices. Um, there's a lot of knickknacks featured prominently in the... Um, oh, you mean Gretchen is a collector? Yeah, Gretchen's a collector, and also there's... I didn't know what else to call them. Knickknacks is a little bit... Well, say, they're but not the frogs, they're, they're, frogs, they're the action... Well, to her, but then there's the frogs also in um, oh, Boyfriend yeah. List... Are you interested in, in collecting? It sounds I like you are. Knickknacks. Oh, I hate but them. You I, I am anti-clutter. <laughs> okay. um, I never thought about knickknacks in a boyfriend list. That's an interesting point. Um, <laughs> I think you secretly love them. <laughs> I might secretly love them. Although but you did associate with them, them uh, with the mean boyfriend that don't. I, I have sort of like a a collector's heart without the desire <laughs> to actually own the stuff. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like I have, I have a small collection of um, 19th century and early 20th century illustrated uh, picture books, beautiful pictures by people like Edmund Dulac and and um, and Arthur Rackham and Richard Doyle and people like that. And um, but I and there's lots of things I would sort of like to collect if I had time or space. You know, if I had a giant garage to keep my collections in or something. <laughs> um, but as it is, I live in a funky small Brooklyn apartment, so none of that is happening. Um, so yeah, I think in Fly on the Wall, I was definitely writing not about myself, but about like some kind of unrealized part of myself that wants to be the collector. But I, you know, statuettes and things really do repulse me. <laughs> <laughs> you keep a, you keep that under wraps really well in the book. I would have guessed. Well, I got to, yeah, I got to go to like um, you know Forbidden Planet and a bunch of comic book stores and like check out you know Kid Robot and Soho and mm-hmm. places like that. I went with my teenage sister and like checked out all of the the stuff that Gretchen collects. What are other things that you do or have done other jobs you've had besides writing? Have you always been just studying English and writing, or have you had other? I have really along been the way? Um, surprisingly unemployed aside from writing um good for you uh you know i've been a college teacher um part-time and uh when i first got out of college i uh spent a year teaching being an assistant teacher in an elementary school um oh i was an aerobics teacher for many years that's how i made my money when i was in graduate school which is a really silly occupation um, and involved some really sh- shameful outfits. And um, <laughs> I were in high school. I worked in a Birkenstock store, um, you know, which was involved a lot of smelly feet, but was otherwise actually really nice because it was like 
Birkenstocks are all, it's very, you know, touchy-feely and relaxed and sort of hippy-dippy, so there wasn't like that retail pressure to <laughs> sell hard or look especially neat and perky or anything. So it was a very relaxed place to work. I had a good time. Um, but, yeah, I basically I've been working full-time as a writer for many years. Another one of your writing projects appears to be writing online quizzes. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I, I wrote one online quiz. <laughs> is there only one? Or is it, no, there's, there's, well, there's oh, well, all there's the 500 book quizzes. quizzes on my website. Yeah. If you go on my website and you click on, which is, um, should I say it? It's www.theboyfriendlist.com. And, um, yeah, there's, there, there's a blog, and in the blog, are, you know, it's, which is divided up by categories. One of the categories is, you know, ridiculous surveys and quizzes. Um, but only one of those did I actually make up the quiz myself. I thought you did the quizzes for your book, too, with the boyfriend. And oh, yeah, I did that's do That's what we're talking about. You can't, you can't hide things from us. We, we researched <laughs> you. I did. I, wrote, I did. I made up. There's a poll for the boyfriend list where you can vote for what guy Ruby should end up with. And there's a, another poll for Fly in the Wall where you can say what animal you'd like to turn into, although that one's not as popular. Many more people vote for the Ruby's boyfriend. And then there's the one about what, what kind of fly you would be. Oh, I did not write those. Oh, okay. I didn't. I didn't. I think they're pretty amusing. There's a, one that says, like, what boyfriend would you really have if you were in the boyfriend list or what kind of boyfriend do you have? And one is, what's your fly style? Um, but both of those were written by Random House Publicity. Okay. Not by me. How can we get that job at Random House Publicity? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's, and they have, the fly one has like little, um, um, oh, I don't know what it's called, flash or something. It's animated. It has an mm-hmm. animated fly. Yeah. It like buzzes around and goes, it has sound and everything. It's cool. So we've heard a little bit from that the next book, Boyfriend, the, sorry, said Boyfriend List. That's the last no. book, Boy the Book, boy that's book coming out. And we'll talk about it a little bit in a second. But first of all, um, are your characters like you, or do you think of them, like, personality-wise, do you feel like you share um, or shared in high school some of the same insecurities in your, as the characters in your YA fiction, or that you're very, very different? It seems like you're different well, I mean, in outer things. I'm a big grown-up now, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, but, uh, but yes, I mean, yeah, I think all, you know, all characters are a bit of, of the author. You know, I mean, I'm a lot like... Ruby, in terms of being um, maybe uh, hyperverbal and um, over-analytical, I was um, talking to my husband the other day, and he said, "Oh, we we got in bed, and he's wearing like a shirt, like a, a shirt with buttons." And I said, "Are you wearing that shirt to bed?" And he looked at me and went, <laughs> "And I said, what did that mean?" And he said, "What do you mean? What did that mean?" And and I was able to list five possible meanings of, <laughs> like, you know, I laid them out. And he's like, oh, my God, you're a crazy woman. I hadn't remembered I was wearing this shirt. And he got up and took it off. But, um, but, like, that's how my brain works. I can think of five reasons that he might have gone, <laughs> and that's very much what Ruby does. You know, mm-hmm. somebody says something, and she spends half an hour breaking it down all the possible social weirdnesses of whatever the person has said and that element of her personality is definitely mine um but you know i'm not still worried about you know i don't know (laughs) whether it's okay for me to wear fishnet stockings or you know whether my friend is talking about me in the locker room you know 
I think everybody still worries about what their friends are talking about them. Well, that's true, but I don't usually let my mind <laughs> go don't there. Believe I don't, I'm, I'm not usually spending my time worrying. If I, once I get going, of course, I can worry with the best of them. <laughs> are you trying to tell me that you guys hang out in the pool and talk about me even when I'm not there? Yes. <laughs> um, obviously, what else will we talk about? None of us do anything. True. Um, there's the source of gossip and, and all things interesting and our group of friends right now. What other authors do you like that are young adult or not, or are you influenced by? Um, None? Well, <laughs> well, young young adult authors that I like is an easy question to answer. Um, influences, I think, is a lot harder because yeah. you really don't always well, know what you're Whichever one. Um, like, I guess influences meaning things that made you think, wow, YA is really fun, but it, if you didn't get to it that way. Well, John Green is one of them. He won the Prince Award. Um, last year for looking to looking for alaska and i just read his new book which comes out in september also which is called an abundance of Catherines," which is about a child prodigy who um he's sort of a washed up child prodigy who's been dumped by 19 girls all of whom were named Catherine, and he's wow. trying to figure out why <laughs> <laughs> and um i think green is really really inventive and really witty, but he also is very emotional. So the books are really fun reads, but they also always kind of push me to um, feel emotions that I might not have felt otherwise, and also to think about subjects that I might not otherwise have thought about. Um, He's very inventive, and he kind of takes my mind in directions that are unfamiliar to me. Um, I'm looking at my bookshelf. (laughs) That's okay. Take as much time as you need. These kinds of questions always put one on the spot. And yeah, we can't remember anybody whose books you like or why you would ever <laughs> read them. Um, oh, I well, I just recently read um, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Oh, I read that also recently by David Levithan and Rachel Cohn, and um, they co-wrote a book, um, alternating chapters, and it's just um, it's a very raw book. And I think that's um, something that, you know, when it happens in YA fiction, it's very exciting. Like I said, because um, a lot of things that, that, you know, one reason it's so interesting to write about teenagers is because they are experiencing a lot of things for the first time or um, dealing with complicated, nearly adult situations, but without a whole arsenal of experience to bring to bear upon them. So I think that that book really captures that kind of the rawness of of emotion when people are dumped for the first time and, you know, how hard those those first breakups can be and how um, kind of open and bleeding these characters are. Um, and I really admired that. And I was also very inspired. I'm, I'm co-writing a book with um, two other YA authors, Sarah Minowski and Lauren Miracle. And um, we were all three inspired by Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, just in the fact that the spirit of fun um, between Rachel Cohn and David Levithan in their book, the, the excitement you could feel in them writing back and forth a he said, she said kind of book, um, that that excitement was very palpable to me. And I really was inspired by that. Um, so 
MySpace and your website are obviously a great way for you to connect with fans and other authors, maybe also. Um, do you feel like, you know, they help you get an idea of what your readers are doing or actually help you get in touch with other authors, like, for instance, Sarah Malinowski, who runs the the teen reads or the teen lit? Um, other group. authors, yes. Like, young adult authors are so awesome. They all know each other, and everyone is really um, unsnarky and ego-less and charming and nice, and their people go out for drinks and and send each other lots of emails, and there's lots of community in the young adult author um, publishing world. Uh, readers? I No. I mean, people send me nice emails. They totally do. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I don't think that, you know, I'm not the sort of writer who could go out and hang out with a bunch of people, whether they were teenagers or whoever else, and then say, oh, I'm going to write about those people because now I've researched them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I yeah. can only write from what's already really inside me. I can go and research, you know, funny little Japanese figurines at Kid Robot, but I can't um, research the emotions that are really going to be at the core of whatever it is I'm writing. I have to write from something I already feel strongly about. So the boy book is the sequel to The Boyfriend List. It's coming out on September 26th. Yes, can you and tell The Boyfriend us, List comes out in paper on that same Oh, okay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what's in store for Ruby? Um, yeah, well, Ruby has suffered this horrible breakup of her first love. She's had panic attacks, and she's gone from being a um, relatively popular girl to a complete social leper that everyone also thinks is a slut in her high school. So she's had this enormous social crash in the first book. And in the second book, she's starting her junior year after a summer away, and she's got to, you know, kind of make a new life for herself at this school where most people hate her. And um, one thing she does is form the Hooter Rescue Squad, with her friend Noel, um, who hasn't been a close friend, but who is still talking to her. And they start to make better friends, and she starts to feel attracted to him. And they, Hooter Rescue Squad is a squad of superheroes um, or slash spies or something, um, kind of like the Justice League, who um, are going to rescue the breasts of, um, of, of, of this girl, Nora, um, who used to be... Rue's friend and who still is kind of talking to her. Anyway, Nora's breasts have been exploited and exposed at an unfortunate tipsy party, and there are photographs that are incriminating and exposing, and so um, the Hooter Rescue Squad is formed to to rescue the breasts of Nora Van Dusen, and um, <laughs> I don't know what else it's about. <laughs> um, it, it's not really about the Hooter Rescue Squad. <laughs> It's about, um, you know, it's, it's about, about <laughs> maybe that's the selling point. I don't know. It's about, it's, no, it's not really about Hooters. It's about, um, it's about Ruby and, and, you know, boys that she likes and her ex-boyfriend is kind of sending her these notes and how she's negotiating the social hierarchy of her prep school and how she's sort of sorting through her emotions and starting to date again and starting to try to reform Friendships. There's a lot of drama on the school retreat when her ex-friend and nemesis Kim comes back from Tokyo, 
they're all alone on an island with like 15 students and two teachers and a lot of bad stuff goes down there um you know more horrors of high school hopefully <laughs> okay so what's in store for ruby is more horror that's good to know <laughs> more horror yes horrors untold Whoa. but also also a lot of making out Oh, that's good. We were really happy about that. She deserves <laughs> it. She deserves it. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're going to be labeled a slut, you might as well have the fun, right? This is the very end. So thank you for okay, talking to us. Okay, thank you. Thanks for having me. And that was the rather abrupt end to our interview with E. Lockhart. Her new book um, is called The Boy Book, and it's coming out on September 26th. So keep your eyes out for that. She also wrote um, the prequel to the new book, which is called The Boyfriend List and Fly on the Wall for Young Adults and is the author of some adult and children's fiction. Thank you for listening to Living Writers. My name is Molly. Um, If you want to hear the entirety of the interview or some of our other interviews, you can go to wcbn.org slash livingwriters. We also have links to the websites um, or information about the authors we've interviewed. It is 526 and almost time for free speech radio news, so stay tuned for that in just a second. Um, up first, this is Nat Baldwin with Look Away. We also heard some Acid Mother's Temple, Spiritualized, Jib Kidder, and Bobby Birdman during this show.
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, September 6, 2006. From KPFA in Berkeley, I'm Aaron Glantz, filling in for Aldo Bogado. A small number of suspected terrorist leaders and operatives captured during the war have been held and questioned outside the United States. George Bush admits the Central Intelligence Agency has been flying security detainees to secret prisons around the world. Israel's Auditor General proposes a criminal investigation of Prime Minister Ehud Olmert and right-wing presidential candidate Felipe Calderon starts forming a government in Mexico. His left-wing rival says he'll never recognize the results. Those stories and more after the headlines. I'm Shannon Young with the Free Speech Radio News headlines. Tony Blair's future as Britain's prime minister and leader of his party appears to be under threat, as seven members of his government resigned today in protest of his leadership. From London, Naomi Fowler reports. The political opposition is describing it as a meltdown for Tony Blair's party. Seven members of parliament, all in junior government positions, resigned today, and more may follow. Efforts to oust him by his own party and members of parliament have been gathering momentum for some time. Even ex-government ministers have called on him to step down for what they see as the good of his party and the country. Many see Tony Blair's strong alliance with George Bush, his support for the war in Iraq and his failure to condemn the bombings in Lebanon as the straws that broke the camel's back. According to polls, the popularity ratings of his government are now at a 19-year low. With an invigorated political opposition on the rise, Labour Party MPs are worried that Tony Blair has become a liability to future election success and to their parliamentary seats. Ministers loyal to Tony Blair have said that he'll be gone within a year, but the question now may be whether he can last that long. This is Naomi Fowler in London for Free Speech Radio News. The good of Fowler says that Israel will lift its two-month-long sea and air blockade of Lebanon tomorrow. International forces will take control of Lebanese seaports and airports. Israeli attacks on the Palestinian territories have continued, killing eight Palestinians since last night. This as a general strike throughout the Palestinian territories protests the international economic blockade that has resulted in the non-payment of salaries of government workers for over six months. Said Benora reports. Two separate Israeli airstrikes last night killed